You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, fine. At least now I knew what she was doing with the multiple hearts she thought were in her chest. They were going into the statues she carved. I had been certain that Marianne Engel was schizophrenic, but given her description of her work habits, I now had to consider that she might be manic-depressive instead. Evidence was mounting in that direction. When I first met her, she was fatigued and darkly attired. Now she was bright in both dress and personality. Schizophrenics tend to eschew talking, sometimes remaining completely silent for hours on end. But Marianne Engel was just the opposite. And there was the nature of her work. Many manic depressives achieve fame in the arts because the condition itself provides the fervor necessary to create something monumental. Which, of course, was exactly what Marianne Engel did. Create monuments. If her account of her carving habits was not a description of a manic at work, I can't imagine what is. But there was also so much evidence for schizophrenia. She described the voices that came out of the stone, giving her instructions. She saw herself as a channel of the divine, and her work as a circle of communication between God, the gargoyles, and herself. This is not to mention her Engelthal past, and her belief that Inferno was appropriate reading material for the burn ward. In short, there was very little in her life that was not touched in some way by Christianity and, as previously noted, schizophrenics are often preoccupied with religion. Andrew Davidson has worked as a teacher of English in Japan and wrote English lessons for Japanese websites. His first novel is The Gargoyle. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Andrew, tell me a little bit about yourself as a, as a young writer. When did you first find an interest in writing and reading? Well, the reading started as as early as it can. I remember even before I was in kindergarten that my mother would bring home Superman comics and Batman, and I always loved them. And I don't even know when I stopped just looking at the pictures and actually figured out that there were words that went along with it. But it, it was quite early. And in fact, speaking of my mother, I know that when I was a, a baby, she used to read me uh, Longfellow's poetry. Uh, to put me to sleep, uh, Hiawatha in particular. So that, that love of, of reading and stories and language, that, that came quite early. As far as writing, I've always written. I think it really started for me when I was about 16. Tell me, what were you writing at 16? I was taking songs to Doors lyrics, or d lyrics to Doors songs, and rewriting them, uh, uh, trying to get the rhythm right and uh, just changing the lyrics so that, so that, you know, I they would be my own. It was a good exercise, and uh, it took me a while to figure out that if I was going to model my writing style off somebody after somebody, Jim Morrison probably wasn't the best choice. Well, what sort of thing were you reading? What sort of books, like novels or, or fiction, first really grabbed your attention as a kid? Oh, honestly, I would read anything. We had a, a public library, and um, I would go down with my bicycle, and I would honestly just load my basket until no more books could fit in. I remember uh, 
for a while I was particularly interested in biographies, um, but but really anything. Now, uh, as a as a teenager here, you're you're doing an awful lot of reading. Were you also writing? Did you write for the school paper? What you know? What made you start writing at that age? That the town in which I grew up was so very tiny that we didn't have a school newspaper. Um, my my grad class, which was the class that I'd gone to school with throughout my entire education career, was around forty people. So there was there was no school paper, but it wasn't the school that um, the interest in writing really was sparked. And I know it's a a story that. It was going to sound like a cliche, but I just had an exceptional high school English teacher, and she was instrumental in not only fostering this love of reading uh, and bringing it to a new level, but and also making me want to write more. Well, tell us about it. What was her name? What what, what did she make you write, and what did she get you to read? Well, <laughs> I feel a little awkward bringing up her name on a national radio, but I'll tell you that her nickname was Killer, and... <laughs> Uh, she was one of those teachers who, at the time, most of the students absolutely hated because she actually made you do all the work. I loved her. I loved her so much because because she was demanding, and I wanted to meet her demands. I, I did so much English homework. I, I always tried to, to meet her expectations. And the best thing about her was that she, if I ever did, she would just raise her expectations to a, to a new level. Well, you graduated, and you're in this tiny town. Did you escape the town? Where did you go next? What did you do? Well, I did escape the town. I don't know if that's the right word, because I actually really love it. The name of the town is Pinawa, and it's uh, in the middle of nowhere in Manitoba. And I, and I still go back. I, I love the town very much. Um, after high school, I went to the University of Winnipeg, or the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, about two years there. Followed that up with some years of University at the University of British Columbia. In the end, I got my four-year English Lit degree in five years of going to school over a seven-year period. And I worked for a couple of years, and as I approached 30, I realized I'd never lived abroad, so I moved to Japan. Now, I understand that at some point, you decided to write down 25 things you wanted to do before you died? When did you do this, and why, why did you have these thoughts? Ah, well, 25 is a, a small number, and it's a list under constant revision. This list actually does exist. I do have a list of things that I want to do in my life. And it exists because people forget, and life catches up to them. And what I actually do is every, every New Year's, I sit down and I look at the list, and I revise it, hopefully check off a couple of things that I've done that year and decide what I'm going to concentrate on in the upcoming year. This year I'm getting a good check mark on the list with the, the publication of The Gargoyle because uh, publish a novel was on the list and always has been. When Well, about this list, when something gets checked off, do you add something else on? Yeah, but it's not, it's not a one-for-one one proposition. It's more a matter of okay, no, I've, I've thought about it this year, and it occurs to me that what I really want to do is, say, learn how to play the cello at some point. So that'll go onto the list. Well, well tell us a bit about your time overseas. Where did you go, and, and why did you choose to go there? Well, I did go to Japan, and I didn't grow up with a fascination of, of, the, of the East. 
It was more a matter of, I'm about to turn 30 and I've never lived abroad. Where is the easiest place I can get to? And with an English degree, I, I realized it would be over to Japan teaching English. At the time, I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia, which has a lot of uh, a lot of Japanese people living there. And I had Japanese friends, and they told me about the country, and it sounded interesting. And I had friends who had worked abroad teaching English, and they told me that they liked it. So basically, I just I went over there with the idea that I'd stay for one year. If I hated it, I'd still stick it out and come back after the one year. And if I liked it, I'd stay another year. And I really did like it, and that became two, three, four, and five years before I finally returned. I love Japan. Were you, what were you writing at this time? Were, were you writing anything? When I was in Japan? Yeah. The bulk of The Gargoyle was written in Japan. It was? Yeah. Well, Now, when did you decide to start writing a novel? I mean, it's one thing to say you want to write a novel. It's another mm-hmm. thing to actually sit down and do so. Unlike probably uh, most first-time writers, I can give you the exact date that this book was started, which was May 1st, 2000. Wow. Now, that's a long time. Yeah. So so how long did you spend actually in the writing? The final, final edits of this book were entered in New York on April 9th of this year. So to actually say how long the writing process was, well, there's eight years from first mark to last mark. And and a lot of that time, six or seven years, was deeply inside of the book. So... Okay, so you know the exact date you started this book. This is kind mm. of peculiar. <laughs> well, ha- tell us about that day. Well, that was the day that I could no longer ignore the lead female character who's named Marianne Engel. And by that, I mean, normally I, I, I don't have inspiration to start something. I I work by sitting down and staring at a blank page, and playing a little computer solitaire, and then coming back to it until I can force myself to do a couple of hours of writing. I'm not someone who has ideas jump into my head and start banging away from the inside until I I can't ignore them. So you had started writing before, oh, writing yes. fiction before. You were writing fiction now. Had you written short stories? or I'd written everything from, from 16 to 20. It was all poetry from... 20 to 25, it was stage plays. 25 to 30, it was screen plays. And there's overlap. But yeah, always, always have written, almost every day. And so you have, do you have a discipline uh, uh, approach to it where you just say, now is the time I sit down? Yeah, very much so. I, I sit down at, I try to get a schedule, and it's usually 11 or 12 at night that I sit down, and I'll work for two or three hours or longer, depending on my work schedule. Uh, when I have to get up the following morning. But it is a matter of sitting down every day. Let's start back with the poetry. Okay, Six... we'll go right back to the poetry, sure. Let's go let's ra- ratchet back to the poetry. You're you're 16, you're writing poetry to Doors songs. Did yes. You, did, you, did you try to send it out anywhere? Oh, no, this was completely for uh, my own education and entertainment, and because I liked it. I, I might have shared it with friends, but... Did you try to be in a band? Oh. A band. No, there was a there was a time in the in my twenties that I would occasionally sing with friends, but uh, this was not not really my my goal. So you're in your twenties now. At this point, you were writing short stories. Then I was. Uh, short stories are one thing that I've never really concentrated so much upon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's it's interesting that we talk about this because I've I don't really have a set idea of what the writing form should be. It's never that I sit down and I think, well, I should write a poem. Um, it's more a matter of okay, this is this is what the piece really needs to be. Um, it's not that I'm particularly concentrating and aiming for a particular type of writing at any point. Well, that, now that's really interesting because you talked about writing stage plays. I mean, right. a state. So you would just sit down one night at midnight or mm-hmm. something and, and start writing and decide what, what was coming out was going to be a stage play. Not quite that simple, but but almost. Uh, it would more be because at that point in my life, all I was reading was stage plays. Mm. So I would be reading, and and a great deal of my my education process in writing is imitating the writers that that I like. So if I went back and I looked at the stage plays that I was writing when I was 22, really they're just horrible um, versions of Tennessee Williams plays. You know, I'm trying to write like him, and of course not being able to. I mean, how could I? But it was important. This was part of the, the process. As I hadn't found my own authorial voice yet, I think we developed this by imitating people that we really like and eventually moving on to writing the way that we are meant to as the people that we are. That's an interesting method. So you try to imitate somebody and, and knowing you're not going to be able to equal them, but what you come out will be you. Absolutely. And in fact, particularly with the poetry, I would sit down and I have a series of poems where, okay, this is the Leonard Cohen poem. And this is the Sylvia Plath poem. And this is the E.E. Cummings poem. And this is the John Milton poem. And I do my very, very best to write in the style that they can. But, I mean, there's one Leonard Cohen. That's it. Well, thankfully, there's uh, there's one Andrew Davidson as well. <laughs> Tell us about screenplays because mm-hmm. that's a, a, again that's a form that's so divorced from the the writing world. Stage plays have a a, a spoken kind of feel to them, but screenplays are really abstract. Mm-hmm. What what kind of screenplays were you were you reading screenplays when you started writing them? I did, and uh, but more than actually reading screenplays, it was watching movies and trying to understand the the structure and form of the screenplay. Like if I was watching Rocky. I would enjoy the movie for what it was, but I would also look at the the structure of the screenplay and go, okay, well, why is this working? And, and when you, what kind of uh, material did you come up with? Did, again, did you try to sell any of this ever? Or no, this was for my own education, and and I was uh, taking at this point um, screenplay courses in university because it interested me, and but it was, I always viewed this as. Writing in general was to entertain myself. And while you talk about the screenplays being somewhat divorced from the writing world, I think it's giving it a bit of a bad rap. And it's it's interesting now that I've written a novel, I can look back over the work that I've done. The poetry was all about the, the word and the beauty of the line and the preciseness of the language. Stage plays, it's all about dialogue. Screenplays are all about the visuals because you can't understand what's happening inside of the heads of the characters. It's only what what they do and what you see. So all of this work, all of this practice, does inform my writing in a novel. It's just very specific areas that I'm 
teaching myself lessons in writing. This process of self-education is is really interesting to me, I, and we we see this a, a bit um, in in the book. The, mm-hmm. the the main character talks about how he how he always is interested in learning that which he's not supposed to know. That learning for him is, is an avocation. It's the process of learning. Right. Talk about your process of learning. Well, for me, the most enjoyable part of writing is the research. Uh, of the book. It's not the sitting down and constructing sentences or putting words one after another. For me, it's discovering that what I need to understand is how homes were built in 9th century Iceland. It's knowing that, okay, this week I have to go read the sermons of Meister Eckhart or uh, Heinrich Zeus. It's discovering that what I really need to find out about is the treatment of severe burns. This is what I enjoy, and this is what I enjoy most about writing because it it's not only about serving the work, it's about my betterment as a person. It's about becoming a more fully rounded human being to know these things. As you do these kind of research, as, so you were doing research before you wrote The Gargoyle? That's true. As it turns out, one of the reasons that the narrator of the book survives the severe burn is when I started the book I was just interested in researching severe burns and there was really no reason for that other than I was curious about them and they they were fascinating. So you pick this subject, you are interested and curious in it and you created a a burn victim just to kind of torment. (laughs) Well, no, it's again, it's not quite that simple because I was researching it just because I was interested, but I'd also been carrying around the idea for a story for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody's had this feeling of being burned at the end of a relationship. And I had been wondering for a long time, well, how could I write a story that starts with a burn and that feeling of being burned? And I just brought it to the most literal level of having him actually uh, injured in this car accident where his flesh is burned away. So it was a number of things coming together. It was this interest in burn treatment. It was this story idea that I've been carrying around for a long time. And getting back to the character of Marianne Engel, uh, who had been popping up in my other writing, and she arrived with this crazy hair that was everywhere and these eyes that shifted color. And she was in front of a church saying things that were a little bit crazy or sounded crazy, but I knew they weren't. all of these things came together at the same time, and that's what started me into writing The Gargoyle. You were in another country when mm-hmm. you started the book. Could you maybe talk about how that informed your decision to start the book or where you started the book? Was there some kind of displacement, that floating feeling away from home that, that made it easier for you to grab onto something that was unreal? I think what it allowed me to do was, um, this was close to the start of my my time in Japan, so I didn't have uh, as many friends calling me up and saying, well, let's go out and do things. I was quite comfortable in staying at home. My work schedule was uh, such that I was able to work later at night, which is always my preference. But it wasn't a matter for me of uh, being in in another country and uh, feeling... I divorced from what I knew. Um, 
because I, I, as I've mentioned, I, I always wrote, and I think it was just a matter of these events came together at this at this precise moment in time, and it was the gargoyle that I started because of that. This is a, a, a fairly dark book, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about your beginnings as a writer, The Doors, lyrics. Um, you're talking about Tennessee Williams. You, you have kind of an interest in the darkness, and you write late at night. Do you, I mean, are you really tired when you write, or do you like sometimes feel like you're um, using that your exhaustion to, to get to a place that you can't get to when you're fully awake? Exactly the opposite. I'm exhausted when I have to get up in the morning. Um, the natural schedule for my body is to sleep all day and work all night. I am alive and alert and well at midnight and not so happy at nine in the morning. <laughs> this book, let's just talk a little bit about this book. and It's, an, it's a very complicated book, and it covers a, a lot of ground. And I'm wondering, you have this character who cements it all together. That that's Marianne. Mm-hmm. Um, when you saw her in front of that church, did you know how far she would take you? How how big this book was going to be? Well, I I had no idea. Um, but that's only because when I start working on something, I never really have an idea. I don't work with outlines. Uh, I I tend to start with characters. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in the idea that character is fate. And if you follow that idea, well, then you start with the character, and the character will give you the story. Um, if I, and I've tried to write with outlines, and I just find that I, when I when I do so, I, I try to make my characters do things they don't want to do, and it doesn't work for me. Why don't you maybe describe this book? How would you describe this book for somebody who's never read it, never read it, and and you kind of want to get them interested, but not tell them everything in it. Would you like the, the one the one sentence elevator pitch? Kind yeah, that one sentence elevator pitch. What? It's the story of a severe burn survivor who meets a woman who may or may not be schizophrenic who insists that they were lovers in medieval Germany. Now, that that's not your everyday plot line. And, and I'm wondering about this idea of uh, reincarnation and reliving and stories within stories that, that informs this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk about researching in- reincarnation and feelings of it? And Well, I think that, again, this is uh, a matter of where the, the characters took me. And um, the question is, how, how much of what Marianne Angle, who may or may not be schizophrenic, how much of what she's saying is is true? Um, and I think that this is a question that the reader is going to be left with. But what did you think? You've read the book. How much is true? Uh, I never doubted that every word was true. Okay. And, and I thought it was kind of interesting that your character did because I kept wondering, I kept saying, how, how can he not believe her? Because the words are so passionate and so true. Well, but you can be passionate about something, but if what you're saying is that we were lovers 700 years ago, <laughs> you know? Well, it does, it does uh, beggar the imagination, but that's, that's the, uh, the point of love. Well, really, I have no answer as to what, what's true and what's not true, of course. This book begins with an mm-hmm. absolutely riveting description of a not-too-likable guy, mm-hmm. um, drunk, 
under the influence of drugs, yes. driving badly, and yes. crashes and burns. Right. After a hallucination. After a, a hallucination that involves flaming arrows. Yes. Um, tell us about your research into the world of burn victims and burn treatment. Yeah. Um, as I say, this was something that I found quite fascinating because simply from a medical and scientific standpoint, the things that they can do now, it's absolutely amazing. And to read about all these scientific advances that have come, and specifically from uh, the time of the Vietnam War where they developed a lot of these treatments, for me, it's it, it really opened up the question, okay, you can do this much for the body, but what can you do for the soul of the person? Because there's there's a lot more to being burned than just having your body affected by it. And so the, the, the research for me, a lot of reading, so much reading, uh, personal accounts of burn survivors, uh, medical journals, anything I could get my hands on, until I had researched it so thoroughly that, that I thought I had all of the answers except for those things that I just couldn't find in books. And at that point, I I found a burn, uh, a burn survivor online who had been writing about the, the experience of being burned. And I contacted this person, and they were kind enough to answer these very specific questions that I just couldn't find anywhere else in the, the published research. When you write this, this whole opening sequence, mm -hmm. it, it's very finely orchestrated. And I think this, this novel is, is very finely orchestrated. And I think that's the approach I feel to the writing is. It, it, it's not, there's not a linear um, uh, plot here exactly. It's more like an right. orchestra where, where tunes will rise and fall and disappear and lead to another tune and variations on, on themes. So could you talk about orchestrating between the, you know, the medical descriptions of things like debridement, and I'd like you to tell us about debridement, yeah. and, and some of these cures, uh, uh, and then getting into the internal and, and then having that layer of pure medical data, and then mm -hmm. your characters, and he's not a very nice guy, not a likable guy, really. Right. Um, uh, his, his journey as well, that... Could you talk about those kind of orchestrating those different parts? Oh, it's very interesting because you're um, talking specifically on how this is not a nice man and how horrific the medical treatment is. And I've had some readers come back to me and say, you know, Andrew, you are so smart to make him really, really unlikable. Because if he'd been somebody for which I'd had any sympathy, I wouldn't have been able to stomach what was happening to him. And... You know, the reader's mentioning this to me, and I'm, you know, I'm nodding my head, pretending like this was a part of my, my great wise plan and exactly how. But I, I understand exactly what they're saying. Yeah, if, if this was somebody that you really cared about and loved and you had to read about these medical procedures, I don't know that you would be able to get through them. And at the same time, he is talking about how horrible they are, but he's got a bit of a sense of humor about it. And that's necessary for him. And it's necessary for the reader because if there wasn't this this wit, um, and it's dark and it's caustic, but it's there. If he wasn't able to look at it and joke about it, it would really just be too much. So dealing specifically with this orchestration of the beginning, there is a balance that has to be 
achieve, I think, to make it readable. This novel is filled with imagery that repeats and recycles and changes and modifies. It's variations on a theme, very, right. as I said, very orchestral. When you were, you said you didn't, you don't do outlines. Right. So as you started this out, were you, you did you know what Marianne's part would be? Did you know anything about the? 14th century <laughs> Germany was going to happen. You just wrote, were writing about a burn, burn victim. Right. I did had no idea that I was going to end up in medieval Germany until I'd been working on the book for over a year. Wow. Um, and it's true. I, I don't write with this this outline, but the, the way that I tend to work, or at least I, the way I worked on the gargoyle, was to write way, way, way too much and then take the pieces and, and fit them together. I, I'm sure that I wrote... Oh, I don't know a million words in writing this book, and end up using about fifteen percent of that. So it's not a process of you know making an outline and following it, but it is a process of okay, I've got all this material, and now how do I fit it together in a way that that hopefully works? Well, this is reflected. Your process is reflected very much in Marianne's process of sculpture, um, mm -hmm. because. It's not about what's there. It's about what's not there, what gets right. taken away. The, the decisions in your character, even all early on, uh, approaches writing with, this, with the same uh, attitude that it's not hard to come up with the sentences. It's hard to decide which ones to use. Right. You, you've got these kind of images that you see in the beginning, and they re return through the whole book. How do you keep track of what you want to do? Do you have to go back and insert images in the beginning when you come up with them in the end? My relationship to the novel is, it's, it's interesting. And, and I'm sure that other writers who've written longer works can uh, understand what I'm talking about, is that I have the whole novel inside my head at any moment. And it's not just, for me, a linear version of the novel or the the uh, the order of senses from start to finish, but I see it in kind of a three D space, and and I can understand the connections between different parts. And as I move things around, I understand when it gets thrown out of balance in my view of this three D space. It's difficult to explain. But it's, I, I don't see it as flat words. I see it as a world where moving things around disrupts or reinforces what's already there. I, you know, when you describe that, it, it's, to me it's like you describe like the entire million words is like a big rain cloud with the entire, everything that happens. And the novel is the rain that falls out. Right, and it's a lot more manageable when you get away from that million words. I, I would imagine. So I've been speaking with Andrew Davidson. His first novel is The Gargoyle. Thank you for speaking with me, Andrew. Oh, thank you. Those words were exactly the permission I needed, and I didn't even have the words to thank him. I just threw my arms around him and squeezed so tightly that he had to plead with me to loosen my grip. I returned to my cell and gathered my few possessions, a couple of robes, my best footwear, and Paolo's prayer book. I had nothing else worth taking. It was raining as I started back towards Father Zunders, through the garden. 
As was the custom for every nun walking along the cloister path, I recited the Miserere for the souls of the dead nuns buried below, but my thoughts of the future had me trembling with fear and anticipation. The rain was good, I thought, as if it had been sent to cleanse the monastery from me. You appear to have a bag packed, Sister Marianne. It was the voice of Agiltrudis. Have you at least said goodbye to your champion, the prioress? It was an immaculate swipe. It didn't matter to me what Agiltrudis or Gertrude might think, but deep in my heart I felt that I was betraying Mother Christina. But what could I have said to her? I wouldn't have known how to deal with the hurt in her eyes. She had always believed in me, even when I had not, and she would never have anticipated my disloyalty. I walked away from Agiltrudis without answering, and she called out after me, Don't worry about Mother Christina. I'll ensure that she never forgets you. I almost turned around to ask what she meant, but what good would that have done? So I kept walking. I knew that Agiltrudis would not raise the alarm on my departure. It was in her best interest to let me go quietly and reassume her position as Armarius in waiting. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.